welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod Welk, joined by the one and only, the delightful, the ever charming Diamond Creek Bomb. It's a three, it's three words. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Welcome. Welcome to your podcast. That was so nice of you to gas me up like that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say gaslight you. What did we do before we had that expression? It has the expression, does it come and go in waves? Because it's from an old movie, right? Yeah, but like I feel like until that Teen Vogue article came out about Donald Trump, like no one was using it. And now my my husband like laughs at me whenever I try, whenever I use it. History of gaslighting. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. It's an old right? term, but it's it was definitely not, you know, in the vernacular in the way that it is now. Like everyone's gaslighting everyone now. Oh, I totally agree. Okay, here we go. New York Times first used the common gerund gaslighting in Maureen Dowd's 1995 column. However, there were only nine additional uses in the following 20 years. Holy, holy moly. And then there was like Lauren... What's her name? Lauren. The writer in Teen Vogue. You're going to have to jog my memory. What happened in in Teen Vogue? There was an article in Teen Vogue during the Trump, the first Trump presidential election in which she, I I think a Teen Vogue article came out. Lauren Duca was the writer and she talked about how Trump was gaslighting America. Okay. I think. And then that, and then from there... I never stopped using the I said I never stopped using the word. This is why we need NFTs because I feel like writers are coming up with really incredible phrases that are just taken taking culture by storm. Another example would be big dick energy. You, yep. you know she's not seeing royalties for that song no. that came out. Oh, you're right. It should be it you, it well actually speaking of which, do you want to know something else crazy? Tell me, this is what we're here for. <laughs> Do you remember a few weeks ago when Cardi B was having to go to uh, court for like a lawsuit about album artwork and she was like wearing suits to court? Remember this like a month ago, maybe? I just remember the stripper fight. That I think was different. But this one was, she had, I guess she put out a mixtape years ago and the album art on the mixtape was a picture of her. And I want to say that like she didn't get clearance from one of the tattoo artists that uh, had tattooed one of her tattoos. And so I I think the tattoo artist sued Cardi B. Wow. Yeah. So apparently now, and maybe it's not just now, maybe it's been always that like if someone has tattoos and you want to film them, you have to either pay the tattoo artist or get clearance from the tattoo artist. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So do you remember when Peep Davidson's, all of his tattoos were like covered up for that movie? No, because I don't watch Pete Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think part of that was because they couldn't get clearance for everything. Jeez Louise. Isn't he getting them all yeah. removed? I don't know. I don't care. But speaking of big dick energy, Pete Davidson, am I right? We'll have to ask Imrata. I think I want to say that this writer for New York Magazine who goes by baby meatballs on on Twitter, at least. A writer by the name of Allison Davis, I think she was the one who talked, who coined the term vibe shift. Mm-hmm. And she, like, where's her money for that one? And then I think, I want to say she also did big dick energy, but don't quote me on that one. Writers get no respect. But you're right. If they created an NFT, then would they make money? 
I don't know, because I guess it has to be attached to the digital file. And how do you attach? I, I don't know. What about like every time you use the term, you had to buy, it's like a Getty image, image where you had to buy the rights to use the term. Hmm. It really makes you think. Doesn't it? This, right? makes, me, this makes me want socialism. <laughs> I know. But I was talking to someone last night who is a born and bred capitalist. And he was saying socialism, while it lifts the weakest members of society, it prevents the strongest members of society from reaching their full potential. <laughs> oh, I, that seems like a very original thought your friend had. Speaking of capitalism, a few capitalist news items came out today, which is Wednesday, November 23rd. Number one, Alessandro Michele is leaving Gucci. No way. Really? He's like leaving he's- he is. You'd think he is Gucci at this point. Yeah. But he's leaving. Well, that was fast. Well, I, uh, I was reading a Women's Wear Daily article and they were talking about um, the fact that there had been an increasing schism between the commercial design team, you know, who was designing all the things for actually selling in the stores right. and then the runway design team. And maybe what it all worked when commercial was doing really well. But I think as the sales goals, you know, went, you know, increased, 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 increased. And maybe the sales weren't meeting the goals. I mean, you know, the only people wearing those like avant-garde Gucci fits were the people that got them for free to wear, (laughs) to wear them to like that LA show, you know, like yeah, probably the amount of new Gucci with tags on the real, real is (laughs) like really wild. Well, maybe that's an example of like a brand that is like, that is quote unquote, like everywhere, so big, so popular, but no one's actually wearing or no one's wearing the runway. Like Mm -hmm. people are maybe wearing like the bags and the belts again. And maybe that's what all of the hubbub was actually selling. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. Mm -hmm. In other news, another um, startup, Balenciaga, got into hot water this week. Um, And you and I have been fiercely and ferociously texting about this one. This one like really pisses me off. It's Balenciaga for their holiday campaign. They thought, why not get a documentary photographer to who's known for his work where he takes pictures of people with all of their possessions in front of them? Like very like Nat Geo style. Yes, very or yeah, very Time magazine. Like a look into the life of someone on the other side like of the all world. All my things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, They said, why don't we get this guy to photograph our holiday campaign and we'll have kids dressed in sort of mini Balenciaga with like all of our holiday gift items on the floor um, or like spread out, you know, on the surface below them. These images came out and immediate, (laughs) like toddlers holding Balenciaga stuffed animals that had S&M gear on them. Um, and they're like, this sounds like a phenomenal idea. So these images came out. Some eagle-eyed TikTokers and Instagrammers started to realize that there were like, I mean, number one, just having kids holding, you know, bondage stuffed animals was didn't sit right it's, with it's a lot of people. It's behavior, but all in for Balenciaga, probably not cancelable for that brand. No, no, not for that. However... What some people started to see was that in one of the images, there were some 
papers spilling out onto the table, some like printed papers. And on the printed papers were some words relating to a court case. Long story short, it was like a child pornography court case about whether if it was animated pornography, it still counted as child pornography. Or like like stimulated child pornography. It was basically a group of like free speech activists fighting. About child, it was about child pornography. For the the right to like distribute and create stimulated (laughs) child pornography. Yes. And this, I think sort of in addition to you know, the toddlers holding, you know, stuffed animals wearing bondage gear was enough for Balenciaga to take down the images and to apologize. To issue the um, most half-assed apology. (laughs) (laughs) Like literally you could see Demna just like smoking a cigarette, like with like laughing with like his creative team being like, I guess we can apologize for having babies holding bondage. Like they're so prude. Yeah. What is he? Like Americans. Yeah, he is. Is he Russian or is he Georgian? Uh, he he's he came from Y Georgian. Project. He's Georgian. Y Project is that where he got started? Who the hell cares? But here's what I want to say: is I I don't think Balenciaga sort of like let the world burn, like light the match, and just like kind of laugh is ever been particularly charming or like I don't know edgy. It feels very like there's a darkness to it. There's definitely like, a dark, feels, like, trolliness to it. Yeah, and it's, it's like, the deep troll verse. It's like if a guy on 4chan had his own, like, fashion line. Yes, and some of it... what it feels like now. I think there was an original idea, maybe in the beginning, when he first took over Balenciaga, but now it just feels like they're courting controversy and... Also, who are they hiring as an art director or a set designer who's, you know, printing out pages of a child porn court case? Yeah, it, it was definitely like a, uh, it was a choice. It's not like this was an accident. No, you know, like those aren't just lying around the prop house. Yeah, it, it was, it's pretty weird. And they're, are they LVMH? They are caring, right? Because, you know, daddy Salma Hayek's husband would not stand for this. Balenciaga is caring, yes. Mm. Which caring is, that is uh, Salma Hayek's baby daddy. No, I thought you was LVMH. Am I insane? Francois Pinot, is that his name? Pinot? No. Who owns caring then? I could be wrong, listen. But but caring is Gucci, St. Laurent Bottega, Alexander McQueen, and that's all. And Salma Hayek is Gucci, so no, he's he's Gucci. You're blowing my mind right now. You're right, Salma Hayek is Gucci. Yeah. This is why I think Demna's out, because... He takes a minute to go. I think he has to go through all the like proper legal channels. And I think he's going to fire Dimna. Yeah. I also remember when I told you that Balenciaga didn't cut ties with Kanye. They didn't like caring cut ties with Kanye or it was like something. I thought Balenciaga did. Hold on. Let me. <laughs> this, this whole segment's slow. <laughs> <laughs> We have a lot of feelings, um, but not a lot of research. <laughs> <laughs> no, Balenci- Balenciaga's parent company issued a statement confirming its end of its relationship with Kanye. And I remember feeling this way when the statement came out and I was like, it feels like weirdly Balenciaga is kind of condoning the anti-Semitism and the, the whole like say whatever is contrary, you know, thing by not itself as a brand disavowing Kanye and anti-Semitism that they had to have like caring do it. 
And now with this example, it also just feels like they're gross people. The other thing I'll say is one of the TikTok accounts I follow was talking about one of the stuffed animal bags that Balenciaga was releasing as part of its gift shop holiday collection. And she used a term that I had never heard, which is called panda eyes. It's slang for a horrible child-related disfigurement. And anyway, if you compare what the term comes from, its its origin, a photo of its origin, with the bear that Balenciaga produced, it's sickening. So let's hope that Demna gets what he deserves. On that point in particular, is there any other evidence besides the eyes on this stuffed bear resemble the eyes of an abused child? Is there anything other than like the visual similarities that that this TikToker is calling out as them being related? I don't know, <laughs> which is the theme of this segment. I'm not sure. Because that one, that one feels, I mean, you look at them and you can see, okay, I can see how people think this is similar, but it's not like literal evidence of like the, the court case document around like child pornography next to like kids holding bondage teddy bears. Anyway, I'm not trying to give Demna a pass. I'm just. It just really, it really freaks me out. God, it's horrible. Who's buying Balenciaga? Maybe he's losing his mind because nobody's buying that shit. It was the most crowd When I was in Las Vegas like three months ago, it was the most crowded store in the casinos. <sighs> but it's also the most laughable stuff. It's like, you know, whereas Martin Margiela will create like a dirty shoe and somehow elevate it to, you know, high art or high fashion, it's like Balenciaga is not even putting in the effort to elevate it. It's just like selling the dirty shoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tisk tisk. What do we have any better news? No, but I ha- we have some interesting news. Well, this is, this could be good news to some. Hit me. We know our feelings on the term clean. It doesn't mean anything. It's not regulated. There's no definition. So you know, brands and people use the term clean without really saying much. But the implied use of the term is that the ingredients and the makeup of this, the production of this product or this person's personal brand, it's it's better for you. So there's a class action lawsuit now <laughs> against Sephora, who is bearing the brunt of the clean movement, the clean washing movement. And the lawsuit alleges it's filed in the New York, New York federal court system. Um, and the lawsuit alleges that Sephora has been duping their customers and overcharging for products by using the term clean when in fact a lot of their products that they use that term to describe are full of synthetic ingredients that according to you know certain scientific studies uh, are harmful to your health. And case in point, they mentioned Say Beauty, which I, I feel bad saying this because I don't want to tear down other f- brands but I feel like Say has always been like the clean washed Glossier. Am I wrong on that? Yeah. Um, it's basically like Glossier, but with like, we're clean. But I will say the clean at Sephora though, they they actually define what they mean by clean. You can go on Sephora's website. Mm-hmm. They did hold the brands that they deemed clean at Sephora to us to specific standards and they were looking at inky lists. They were they were doing their the doing the work, so to speak. Right. Yeah. They they were defining it 
in terms of their own like retail and dot com environment. So in my mind, they're not in the wrong here. I'm really interested to see how this case like plays out because they're basically like suing Sephora because of consumer misconceptions around like a vague term that Sephora actually did define. So so they're basically anyway, saying that, that this class action lawsuit is saying that consumers understand the term clean uh, to be meaning free of synthetic chemicals and ingredients that could be harmful um, to people or the environment. And I don't know. I think that the consumer might be smarter than thinking it means free of synthetic chemicals that are that potentially are harmful to the environment. I thought it, but you know what? I think this what this does show is that people still don't know what the fuck clean means, and in fact, it may mean nothing. And they're like they're letting brands determine their health. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I feel like a lot of this is like the consumer not taking uh, responsibility for their own. Health. I mean, I see it all the time with people wondering about, like, is your brand clean? And if you ask them, well, what, what are you trying to avoid? And I can help you answer that because there's, you know, there's no definition to the term clean. And then they have nothing to say. And I get where they're coming from. They want to make a healthy decision. They want to be reassured they, that it's like, okay, that it's a good choice. And they probably don't know that it's not defined. They probably do think it's like organic. Organic is defined. It's a regulated term. You can't just slap the term organic on a food product and have it be organic. And I actually think in cosmetics, it's not as regulated even, the term organic. Don't quote me on that. But. Yeah, because it, well, I, but I think you're right because it's like there is the things are processed to a greater degree and have more, like more hands are touching all of these ingredients in cosmetics. So it's like to say yeah. something is organic, it's like is the original plant that the thing is extracted from through an organic extraction or distillate. You know what I mean? Like the things are distilled with alcohol yeah. and all the different things that, yeah, I agree. That's confusing. So anyway, we'll see how this plays out. Here's what I have, which I think is an actual <laughs> very interesting situation. So Kristen S. Hair Care, which is a, was or, or is, I think, a runaway uh, hit New, relatively new hair care brand that is sold primarily in Target. It's been, it, it sort of was nowhere and then it was everywhere. Everywhere. Created by a hairstyle, uh, a celebrity hairstylist slash influencer, Kristen Sivisend. Sivisend? Anyway, she created this brand in partnership with Mesa Group, uh, a beauty incubator or a company that bills itself as a beauty incubator. They work, they're behind Flower Beauty. They're behind Taraji P. Henson's TPH. They're behind Hey Humans, which was uh, the Jada Pinkett Smith one that came out right after, or I think right before the slap. Um, anyway, they're they're an incubator. But what Kristen S. is now alleging in her lawsuit is that essentially there have been unreasonable restraints placed on her by Mesa Group that have basically caused her to lose money and not be able to launch and grow and sell the brand among other among sort of the the many different points she makes in the lawsuit one is that you know she heard that they were approached Mesa was approached by L'Oreal to sell the company or to buy the company and Mesa Group didn't even engage in the conversation Oof. it's interesting i think because you know the the trend within the beauty industry of using these third-party beauty incubators, which are essentially groups of business people, 
usually from within the industry, sometimes not even from like, you know, they could be from private equity or something who come together and, and basically say to potential founders and celebrities, hey, we'll, you know, take on the burden and the financial cost of getting a brand off the ground, you know, we have, and we'll share all the back end resources, you know, we'll do all the sourcing and the product development and all of that. And you, and in exchange for a very significant cut of the business, but we're also taking all of the risk and all of the financial, you know, all the capital constraints off, off of your plate. But here, herein lies the potential issue, which is that if you create, if you create a very successful brand with one of these incubators, not all of whose brands are going to be successful, then it puts you as the one that is successful in a sort of sort of a tight spot. One of the things that Kristen S says in this lawsuit is that she was as that Mesa Group was using her brand as a piggy bank to fund their many ideas, and and says that that Kristen S is responsible for about half fifty percent of Mesa Group's total annual revenue. I mean, it all goes down to what 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 was their agreement? How much of the company So it was a complicated agreement. But did Mesa Group Basically, have yeah. like, you know, controlling a controlling stake in her business? So basically then- what happened is and the, and this is also the point too, right? Kristen S, I had never heard of her before the hair care brand, had you? No. And if you, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our readers know already what it is, but if you're listening and you can't quite picture it, it's it's the very like modern looking hair care brand. It doesn't look like it even belongs at Target. Yeah, to be it looks it looks like it's, it looks pretty luxury. It looks like uh, Oribe. Yeah, almost monochromatic, like pink and gray and like purple bottles. Um, but so basically, white. I guess when the when they made this deal initially, Mesa and Kristen S, she was going to receive limited sales royalties and a modest annual guarantee, but the parties agreed, and this is according to a Women's Wear Daily article, that once Mesa and S grew the business and positioned it for a sale in excess of $40 million, it was in their mutual best interest to sell the business, and S only stood to realize equity proportionate to her contribution once the business was sold, at which time she'd receive 25% of the proceeds from the sale. But because a sale hasn't happened so far, you know, she hasn't really cashed out. So it's it sounds like she doesn't have equity regardless. She only has she only gets twenty five percent of the proceeds from an eventual sale. So she's wants it to sell. She's not she's not making enough money right now for how successful the company is. Yet Mesa Oof. Group is using the money that they're making on Kristen S. Beauty to fund all the other projects that they're that they're working on, and that Oof, some of which haven't been successful. This hurts so. Bad. I totally like feel for her. That fucking sucks. Yeah, but it's a it's a it's a double edged sword because she could she have done it without Mesa? You know, I'm not defending Mesa, um, but you know, they created it. She created it as well. But you know, she, I always think, and this is maybe because I I'm a, I'm the son of a lawyer, but. You really have to be satisfied with any contract you sign and any agreement you make and and really feel that if worse comes to worse, which is essentially why you create these types of agreements, or best comes to best, that you'll be satisfied with what you get based on the contract. But that's assuming that you that you have optionality. You know, like if you're I can, speaking from experience, if you're a company that's going out and raising money 
if only a handful of people are willing to give you that money or even one is willing to take that bet on you, what are your options? You don't really have the upper hand to negotiate. So she probably ended up with like, it sounds like she ended up with like a, a shitty deal to get her company off the ground. And now she's like, fuck. <laughs> right. But, but yes, but then, but the, the alternative to her was to not have a brand because if this was her, you know, if, if she took terms that weren't ideal, they probably seemed, uh, number one, they might've seemed okay at the time before there was a brand and she had any, you know, sense of what, you know, how big it could be or how much money could it, could it be thrown off by the company. But I, 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 I think it's complicated. I think this one in particular is complicated because I just think that whoever was ultimately responsible for creating the brand, the packaging is good. The branding is good. Apparently the product is good. Um, so someone did a really great job. And if that was Kristen, then she is getting screwed. If that was the team at Mesa, then they might not be getting screwed. But who knows, right? Mm. Is it, you can't say that they were like leveraging her fame to create this brand because neither you nor I in the beauty industry was particularly familiar with her. Not to say that she's not a genius. Not to, so then you have to assume they're leveraging her genius and that she yeah. did bring something of incredible value to the table. Yeah, but Annie, as we know, assume makes an ass out of you and me. Yes. One time I was on a reality show pilot and they said that line like 800 times. They like kept on refilling. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Rewind. What reality show pilot were you on? I didn't want to be on. I was like interning at. Um, I was interning at like a magazine one summer in Austin, like a local like society magazine. And I'm pretty sure it was the same production company that did that was doing one of the Real Housewives shows. And they were filming a pilot based on the magazine staff and their lives and Austin social scene. And because I was an intern there, I was like there. <laughs> there weren't a lot of people that worked at the company. It was weird. It was weird. Um, thank God that never saw the light of day. That's what I was going to say. That would have been, that would have been tough for you, I think. I think, pro I mean, I think, I mean, they didn't get the deal. I was probably as boring and dry as I was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I would make great reality TV. I think I'm too, I'm too worried about how I come off. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and he kept on saying, or he asked me, he said something about, what do, what do we do when we assume? And I had never heard that <laughs> phrase before, so I was like... So you're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you would probably be the worst person on reality TV ever. You think so? Because you're not going to, like, you're not going to perform for the camera, which is kind of what you have to do. I think I answered, like, earnestly. I was like, oh, I uh, probably, like, make make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't get oh, expect. Man. I didn't expect to get called an ass. Mm. But man. you didn't even. But the the show never saw the light of day. Thank God. Thank God. I want to just call out for one second <laughs> the cut. New York Magazine's the cut. You because call them out? they wrote an article about my beloved Ozempic. Oh yes. And it was an article titled "You Might Go Through Hell for Your Post Ozempic Body." And it detailed patients who've had bad experiences with it saying that they're nauseous and they're vomiting and yada, yada, yada. To which I that's say, part of the, that's it's part like of the sensationalism. Journey. Yeah, it's also sensationalism. It's also like, do you really think that you're going to be able to take an injection that is going to just like 
make help you lose weight and there's going to be no side effects related to like nausea, like related to like your GI tract, which is what it is. Yeah, is the cut going to write an article about going to like spin class and be like, it hurt my ass the next day? <laughs> like right. You might like, go through people, like people describe chafing, <laughs> sore vaginas, <laughs> like whatever. Like that's the essential equivalent. It's Nausea, like, yeah. vomiting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like people, people training for marathons report like sore legs, <laughs> shin splints. I don't know, sweeties. I I just say, you know, I think the bigger issue is more the the as the demand for the drug and the other drugs in that class increase. I think if they become more scarce for people who actually need them for diabetes, is that actually happening? Is is Zimpic becoming scarce, or is that just something that people are saying could potentially happen if it keeps getting used for this like off? off-label. I think it's tough to find in, in some pharmacies. So is Adderall right now. Yes. I That's what I've heard. Luckily, I'm <laughs> on Vyvanse. I know. I have had no trouble finding Vyvanse, but there was also an article in the New York Times that was like, I didn't even read it. I just saw the headline and it was like, as Adderall shortages worsen, you know, like patients describe feeling, and I was like, oh, like what? Like shitty? Yeah, <laughs> not able not to able focus? To, yeah. Mm-hmm. I will say, this is like a personal story time. I won't go into why, but uh, if some of you, some of you may recall, we've talked about ketamine therapy on the podcast. We have in our first year of of business, if if you will, <laughs> or whatever this is. <laughs> and yeah, I did a round of ketamine therapy, and I, I have to say, like, Google it, look into it. It might help you. So what? Tell me how you feel it has affected you it well i did five rounds and felt which means like five times you go every other day for five sessions so it was like kind of over maybe like two weeks and you go in you're hooked up to the um you know an iv and i request to be in a completely dark room um they give you a blanket and you lay there and you get a ketamine drip and they started me quite low. On Is a there lo- a doctor? In the room with you? Yeah. No. Got it. They leave you alone. But you're in like a clinic. Uh, yes. I was in a doctor's office. Yeah. A doctor, an anesthesiologist owns the practice. Um, Got it. And you, and you consult with a physician before you come in and on your first treatment day. And anyway, so I did, I did like five rounds and I was like, it, make, it definitely makes me feel like weird and kind of like a zombie in like a weirdly pleasant way. During? You put on headphones and you just, during and then for like a couple of hours after. Like I, they spit you out on like Maiden Lane in the financial district and you're just like walking around like a total Oof. zombie. I also feel like the financial district is a really, that's like a tough, that's a tough, tough come down neighborhood. Kind of, but it's kind of like dead down there too. So it's kind of nice. It's hard to get to. I will, the, there's not... A lot of trains right right in that area. Um, but it's also just like a little bit of like a soulless neighborhood. Oh, completely. So like, I just mean like mentally, emotionally, it feels like psychically it's a tough place to like reenter. Well, ketamine makes you very sensitive while you're going through the treatments too. So like any emotions that you're feeling, well, you'll feel like heightened. But I was kind of like not feeling great results. I was feeling really bad um, for like five treatments. And then so on the sixth one, the 
physician who runs, who owns the practice came in to talk to me and was like, oh shit, you're fucked up. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to double it. <laughs> they doubled the dose and I was like, you could tell it worked. Like it just worked. Like the, the following week I was like, it was, it was as if like uh, my whole mood, my outlook on life like totally just lifted. And does it feel like it's a chemical that it's doing something chemically or is it doing something like psychologically? By which I mean, like, does it feel like during the treatment you're working through something in your head or is it more just like a chemical thing that shifted, that changed? It does. You you run through a lot of your relationships in your head, at least for me. When you're when you're on the drip. Yes. And for me, it brought a really, really, really intense sense of gratitude for the people that are like very important in my life. To the point where I would like text them while I was on ketamine. I didn't get a single text, by the way. (laughs) Exactly. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, but it was people that like, I have like a complicated relationship with, you know, like my ex-boyfriend or, you know, or like my best friend from high school, one of my employees who was just doing such a good job. (laughs) Just. And so you're thinking about all this while the drip is happening. And then, and you know, and like on the soft services social media account. So if you... So some people got some like CX responses from me while I was like high on ketamine. They were lovely responses. You were like, just thank you. I was like, like no this. problem. No problem. We are going to get that fixed for you. So do you continue to do it or do you wait a few months now to do another tr- like round? So I did two rounds at the increased dosage and I continue to feel a positive effect um, it doesn't make your problems go away and it doesn't make you feel any differently about them. I'm still annoyed about the same things. I still like see the negative influences on my life as like what they are. However, I don't like ruminate on them in a way that I think uh, I would have like obsessive con- like tendencies to like ruminate on problems and like want to fix them. If there's a problem, it like it's very upsetting if I can't fix it. Um, and that's gone down. So it, it, it doesn't change, it doesn't make the problems go away, but it gives you a little bit more distance from it, from the problems? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. It helps put, put up, like, it gives you perspective. It helps put up, like, um, yeah, it, it helps distance yourself from it and realize, like, that's not something I can, ha- I have any control over right now. And there's something happening right in front of me that I can uh, experience and, you know, it's probably a better thing than what I'm worried about. So this, um, you know what this sounds not dissimilar to, which is a great segue to arts and culture is Nixium. Hold on. Ketamine is nothing like Nixium. <laughs> well, but hear me out. Did you watch the second season of The Vow? I'm telling Dr. Meisner you said that. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you watch the second season of The Vow that just had its finale last week, this week? No, but, but I, on your advice, I did continue watching past the first episode. So I'm, I'm on the episode, actually just before I came to record the podcast, I was on episode two. Of The Vow season two. Season two. Mm-hmm. So, I, okay, a couple things to say because this is our arts and culture segment. Number one, 
If you didn't get through the first season of The Vow, the second season is quite different in that there's a different cast of characters that the show is following. So if you didn't like something about the way the first season unfolded or was produced, I think that the second season can kind of be taken separately, though it, of course, is helpful to know and be familiar with everyone from the first season. But that said, the second season goes a little bit further into the actual, like, teachings of Nexium, in particular, the ways in which the two founders of Nexium, Keith Raniere, obviously is the convicted mastermind behind Nexium and DOS, which was the secret sex society, so to speak. Um, and Nancy Salzman, who was, in her words, kind of the person who kind of lent legitimacy to Keith Raniere's, uh, teachings because she was a trained nurse. She had studied neuro-linguistic programming, which was some sort of a pseudoscience, kind of like a hypnosis adjacent field. But they, the the filmmakers in season two get a sit down interview and, and seemingly over many days and or weeks with Nancy Salzman, um, who was his co-conspirator charged with many crimes and ultimately sentenced to 42 months in jail. But of course, Keith Raniere was sentenced to 120 years in jail. Anyway, what's interesting is that you're actually getting to see how one of the founders, you know, has processed, you know, the, the end of Nexium and sort of the effects and the collateral damage of what Keith Raniere did in real time, but also how she still in some ways uh, wrestles with the idea of, of, wh- of whether she helped people. And if she, if, if she did help some people, does that justify any of the other actions? In particular, like there was this idea of like stimulus and response, and she would do these sessions with people who were having, you know, Tourette's. I mean, there, there's an episode about how they quote unquote cured ter- p- people's Tourette's, but they would also use the same methodology to kind of similar to like Scientology in some ways. And I think this was that says a lot about Keith Raniere and how, in some ways, like unimaginative he was when he was creating all of these methods because it was very similar to Scientology. But like, you have a you know a a, a stimulus will trigger a response and. There were ways in which like Nancy Salzman developed these processes that would help separate the stimulus from the response, give you a little bit more uh, breathing room from the stimulus to prevent you from having the response, which ultimately Nexium taught that you were in control of, which was problematic when it came down to things like abuse. Like essentially, as you went into deeper classes, coursework in Nixium. Oh my God. I could talk about it forever. The second season is must watch TV. Nancy is saying that she wasn't complicit in the sex cult side of things. She's very much like I built a career helping people for 20 years and this guy Keith totally duped me. That's where I am. So it doesn't feel like Nancy. No, but as the show goes on, what you see is her really, you know, struggling with her role in everything. So that's at first, that's sort of where they meet her, um, which is like, I was doing good things. I was trying to help people. But the way that they kind of can, the story evolves in the second season, it's quite heartbreaking and and fascinating to watch. Um, I recommend it wholeheartedly. I, It's so 
and this is gonna come off as like victim blaming. And I totally, I totally understand how these people are brainwashed. I just have to be an asshole for a second and make fun of the fucking dork that is Keith Raniere. I mean, he's such, he's the like a little, tro- he like he's a little, over, like, I know, these, he's a little troll. Um, these like successful, like seemingly cool and intelligent women. I mean, I, I know. And you think about like, Historically, cult leaders, there's been something kind of like, I don't, I actually don't even know. I think that they've like usually been somewhat attractive or like, you know, but maybe with Keith, I think he, number one, identified women who were seeking something and then he manipulated them in over many years. He he manipulated Nancy Salzman over 20 years. Like she, to the point where she would do everything against her better judgment. I mean, yes. And then you look at him and he like plays volleyball and you're like, you're a fucking twerp. Like what the, f- like who, and I, the whole time I was watching the show, I was talking to Casey and I was like, I would be the worst cult member because like the first, the first like session, I'd be like, wait, a hold on. What? Because the other thing with Keith Raniere is like none of what he's saying makes sense. Like it, you can't follow one of his thoughts. It's like it's gobbledygook. It's like it's what is it like word salad, word soup or whatever where it's like it doesn't make any sense and people are nodding as if he's saying the most profound things. Yeah, he's like he just uses like the perception of your reality is the cognitive. The, yeah, yeah, like, it's like the perception of your reality is all you have. But if you perceive reality differently without the perception, that's happiness. Then what do you have? <laughs> and then people are like exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, 18,000 people went through Nixium. And there still is one of the guys in the documentary who says that, you know, Nixium cured his Tourette's still is like a supporter of Keith, even now knowing everything that's come out in the trial, all of the, you know, very sinister sex and, you know, it's like all of the horrible sex crimes that he was convicted of. It's bad, but it is must-see TV on HBO. Personally, it's very interesting. I'm interested to hear from any readers that were in sororities. It is interesting how often they describe the DOS, which is like the internal all-women like cult as a sorority. We think it's all women. What do you mean you think it's all women? You're led to believe the women who enter DOS are led to believe that it's only women involved. Oh, are there, it's not only women? I, I haven't gotten just to saying that point you have yet. to watch. Oh, I don't want to. You have I don't to. want to. I just find him so irritating to look at. He looks like a younger version of if you watch the Harry Potter movies, you know the guy that's like a rat but who's also a human sometimes? Um no, I have no idea. He looks like he looks like the younger version of him. I mean, it just show it it is so bizarre. If and this was one the reason why I even wanted to highlight the vow is because if any readers of this podcast have any experience with Nexium, it's all I want to talk about. DM me, please. I, I will I will happily have any and all conversations about Nixium in the DMs. There's 17,000 people out there. I know. And someone must have an aunt or someone who was in it and has a story about it. I want to hear stories. It's my 
primary passion is hearing about Nixium right now. The other thing I'll say is that Claire Bronfman, who is one of the kids of Edgar Bronfman, the Seagram's heir. Anyway, billions of dollars bankrolled She's Nixium. She's a Nepo baby. She's a Nepo baby. She bankrolled <laughs> Nixium. You know, it's believed that she spent like over a hundred million dollars um, in various ways, like funding Nixium, funding lawsuits for I mean, people she was who funding, were- She was also funding like the research into like their work with people with Tourette's. Tourette's and- or whatever, yeah. But it was like, it was not, I mean, that, that stuff was very dangerous because it was being, like the practitioners were not licensed to be doing, you know, Tourette's work. Mm-hmm. I I get really worked up about Nixium. But anyway, if anyone has any experiences, please let me know. Were you in a fraternity, Nick? Yeah. My freshman year, I went to Johns Hopkins. I was in A.E. Pi, which is the Jewish fraternity. Yeah. Do you feel any like, do you feel like you were like brainwashed or like at least like swept up in like groupthink in a way that you look back on and you're like... No. So, and this is why, I guess this reinforces my thought that I would be the worst cult member because anytime I didn't want to do one of the things that they were saying I had to do, I'd be like, I'm not doing that. And they were like, okay. And they would like give me a modification. Like a yoga class. Yeah. Like literally they're like, okay, you can just like stretch on the mat. (laughs) Yeah. No. Like I remember one time there was like, you had to like chug gallons of milk and like run naked or, and I was like, listen, I'll like go running and, you know, I'll have, I'll have like a, a glass of milk, but I'm not going to like, you know, streak through the fucking dorms, like with a gallon of milk in my stomach. And they were like, okay, (laughs) we'll take it. So I just, I was not into the, and I only did it because at Johns Hopkins after first semester freshman year, if you didn't join Greek life, there was really no other, at least from what I could tell, there was like no other option if you wanted to go out on the weekends, like you, you kind of had to, to join it. And I ended up loving the social life that it opened up. But of course I left to go to Brown the next year. So I didn't love it that much. Wow. But I think it's different. I think, I think that what you noted, what you learn in the whole cult thing is that, you know, when, when, when you're in a sorority or in a fraternity, you're not like not allowed to talk to people who aren't in that sorority or fraternity. Like you're not isolated from what? your friends and family. You're not. You would be surprised, Nick. Really? I mean, no, you're not, not allowed to talk to your family, of course, but there, there was definitely like uh, unspoken rules or even like not unspoken rules around like kind of who you associate with and who you don't, what fraternity parties you're you're supposed to go to and which ones you aren't. Like there's definitely a, there are definitely structures, I guess is the way to describe yeah, it. Which I, which makes sense. And I think that a lot of the structures are being looked at right now. Like aren't, isn't Greek life kind of under siege in a lot of schools. I don't think so. I think we talked about this on the podcast before. I think in like the good, like big 12 schools, for instance, yeah. like I think it's just the exact same as when I was there, which We're wasn't like a lot different bubbles. from like the 80s yeah. when John Hamm was there and guys were dying getting hazed, you know? Yeah. I think, I think a guy died getting hazed like the year before I went to UT. That's if so I'm crazy. Not mistaken. And sad. I mean, one time we had to, 
they called it Edward Forty Hands, and they <laughs> yeah, took duct tape. duct tape and they taped uh, Old English that malt liquor one bottle to each of our hands, and we like weren't allowed to like stop until we had drank both. But like, I literally like when no one was looking, like poured one of them out. <laughs> like I I I was not I was not there to. To be indoctrinated. Yeah, I mean, the enforcers of this are like a 20-year-old guy. Exactly. <laughs> Although I did hear, I mean, my my ex was a pledge trainer or whatever, so he was in charge of hazing, and he, he would make them, like, watch Spinal Tap, and then he would ask them very specific questions about the movie, and if they got it wrong, they would have to go back and watch it again immediately. <laughs> like, that was their hazing. That sounds like <laughs> a kind of, like, like yeah, that sounds like a funny one. The other thing I'll remember... I, I will remember, I do remember, is um, there was like hell night, which was like the night before, I guess you were officially in the frat. I forget because I was drunk and this is also a long time ago. Um, so you like stayed up all night. I don't even, doing nothing that bad. But then you're brought into this room with like one of the brothers and they pour they were like, how, you know, what is your commitment? What is your loyalty to the frat? Like, you're gonna, and they start pouring um, vodka, like shitty you're, you're like, vodka. It's about nine months long. <laughs> <laughs> they start pouring shitty vodka. They're like, you know, tell us when to stop. Like when you're loyal, when you know, like when you're no longer loyal, or like whatever. Like prove your loyalty by how much you're willing to drink of this vodka, and like how big of a shot you're willing to take. And you know, you like do it up to the top because you're like, I guess I have to. But then when you go to drink it, it was water. (laughs) I know. Should we do products of the week? Mm -hmm. Nick, I have so much stuff to talk about, but I'm trying to save stuff that you would actually give people. Yeah. We're so next next week is our gift guide. And we have some special guests that we'll be bringing in calling upon for some of our hardest um, categories of gift givees. So let's just keep it to one, you know, thing you wouldn't want to give as a gift because I have one. Okay. I do too. You go first though. Okay. My product of the week is chomperlabs.com. Chomperlabs.com is a website where you can get a custom night guard for like under $200 delivered to your door in a week. So I went to the dentist probably like six months ago and the dent, it was like a, I really liked the dentist, but he took pictures of my teeth and he showed me that because I grit my teeth and grind my teeth so intensely at night that I actually have cracks in my molars (gasps) and that if I didn't do something about that, um, if I didn't sort of guard my teeth that my note, like at some point my molars could shatter which sounds like Ooh. a horrible, that's a horrible thought. But essentially like there's but just like- you could get you could get veneers on, on um, insurance. I guess that's true. But I just like the whole, I mean like waking up with like a sh- mouth of shattered teeth is like literally something I have nightmares about and I, I don't want to get close <laughs> to it. But what he also said is that when you're asleep, you actually are gritting harder than, the pressure is more intense than when you're awake because you like don't have like that limit that you have when you're awake of like pain or discomfort. So it's actually much more, uh, there's much more pressure. Anyway, he was like, you need to get 
a night guard, which I guess they always are trying to upsell you at the dentist. Long story short, I got one at the dentist. It was like $800. It took two weeks to arrive. I, my daughter, you know, took it and I lost it within three weeks. But I did notice that I actually felt better the mornings after I would use the night guard. Like it, it just, my jaw was maybe less sore. I don't know. So I was like, I'm not going to go back for another $800 night guard from the dentist. That just feels ridiculous. I did a little Googling. I found Chomper Labs. It's essentially the same thing. They send you a kit where you make an indentation of your teeth and then they create a custom night guard based on the shape of your teeth. And it's the exact same thing as the one I got at the dentist, but literally a quarter of the price. Incredible. And they keep your like imprints on file. If you ever lose it, you know, you can just get a new one. Or if you ever get lost, they have your dental records. Exactly. Chomperlabs.com. Love that. Great name. My product of the week is, I'm sure it comes as no surprise to anyone who's seen a photo of my face. I have pubic hairs for eyebrows and these thick, dark hairs, although I'm not a hairy person. What if you had pubic hairs for eyebrows and eyebrows for pubic hair? <laughs> yes, I have a great arch around my crotch. <laughs> My crotch just always looks really angry. But it's probably no surprise that they're not, these thick hairs are not contained to my eyebrows. I will occasionally get a dark, thick hair on places that I don't really want one. But I don't, the problem with laser hair removal is you have to go into some place where the practitioner got her license online from like a two-week course and she's zapping you and she's rude and obviously I had a bad experience getting laser hair removal and they won't do the one hair underneath your belly button. They won't do it. What do you, They'll what be do like, you, that's an extra $75. Oh, just to get like any errant hair? Yeah, like you go in there, you paid over $1,000 for like, you know, however many treatments for them to zap your crotch hairless and then you're like can you just go up a couple of inches and get that one hair right there below my belly button no that's Hmm. a new that's a different area that's more money they won't do it and I'm like the fuck and so now I still have these hairs but I'm not going to go and also I'm not going to go to Midtown every time like every four weeks to get the one hair zapped and pay for the different areas of my body where I need the one hair zapped. So I did some research and I found an at-home laser hair removal device and I ordered it and I've been using it and I the hairs that I zapped haven't come back. So it works. How much is a how much is an at-home laser hair removal device? There's a range. I did get one of the uh, I don't know if higher end is the right word. It's not like this is like a luxury product, but the technology and the light used is apparently it lasts longer, it's stronger, it's safer. Um, and I got the Tria hair removal laser, and it is. $499. And and just for, for comparison, how much is a session of, of professional laser hair removal? Well, you have to you have to buy them in packs. So this is probably one of these, the cost of one of these machines is less than I paid for a series of like six treatments. So it's incredibly cost effective. Um, and by the way, you can also use this over your whole body if you wanted to. And if your hair is the right color, you know, with any laser hair removal, you have to have contrast between the hair and the skin beneath. So like, for instance, the, the hair on my legs is blonde. So I 
it, this wouldn't work on my legs, but it will work on the one hair below my belly button. Uh, what else can I tell you? It has a very pinpoint tip, which other at-home devices have a larger surface area to get larger areas of your skin zapped and like more hairs or, you know, multiple hairs at once. That's not what I need. So I went with the Tria that has a very like specific surface area so I can just get that one hair. It doesn't really hurt. I turned it up all the way the first time I Ooh. used it as I do with every device that I get. And it works. I mean, I don't know what to say. If you're If you are frustrated with going to the laser hair removal place to get zapped and like don't just buy one of these it's a one single so okay one question and just this is an idea well it's not even a question it's an idea what if you started doing this on the side for some extra cash um like letting people use my tria no you doing it to people if you do like you know best way to like create change within an industry is from within so if you don't like the way that people are treating you when you're getting this done maybe you can do it or maybe i can make some at-home laser hair devices for my company or hear me out it's like a real real but for laser hair removal devices so you're just having yeah. to rent one listen when i'm done getting the hair blue my belly button like when there's no more because you you guys you know how girls know the one there's random hairs that will pop you get older and there's these hairs that just come out of nowhere right um, I don't know if this is, happens to you, Nick. Um, Do you see new hairs or did you get all your hairs at once? That's a great question. I, well, I, I've never done laser hair removal. No, but I mean like when you're exploring your body. No, you definitely, I mean, like yeah. When it, During most of my explorations, I do end up finding that as I get a little older, I get a little bit more hair, like around like on my shoulders maybe but I'm not a, I'm not like a super hairy person but I'm also not like you know smooth as a seal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well 500 bucks once I'm done getting all the hairs that I'm finding on myself then sure I can read the real real Maitreya what if we do a giveaway on our Instagram for an Annie Creek bomb a diamond used Tria yes it's disgusting <laughs> no I don't want to do Think about it. Think about it. It like, has touched my burning like Ooh. puke. Oh my god! It's. I could actually talk- probably get good money for that. Exactly. Niches on the Exactly. Internet. You could probably okay, sell that through Balenciaga. That. Let me think about that. That's all we have time for. Next week we'll be back with our gift guide. We have some great guests. We're not going to tell you anyone who's coming on. It's all just going to be a surprise. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Wes Haas and our theme music is Danny Presant and Simon Abronowitz did our album art. What else? That's it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and we will see you on the flip side. Instagram. Please do let us know if you um, were in Nexium. We would love to hear about your yes. experience. And we'll keep it all anonymous. Mm-hmm. Love you. Bye.